welcome to the second season of Genetically Speaking, the podcast for the American Society of Human Genetics, where we explore the human stories behind human genetics and genomics research. I'm your host, Chris Gunter. Today, we are focusing on a paper nominated by my ASHD colleagues published in 2021 in the journal BMC Medical Genomics, and it's entitled Disclosure of Clinically Actionable Genetic Variants to Thoracic Aortic Dissection Biobank Participants. So we're really pleased to have three of the authors with us to discuss it, Adeline Beal, Rajni Atre, and Kristen Willer. All three of them work at the University of Michigan. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for Thank you for having us. So what was the catalyst for this research topic? So it started with cardiologists and cardiac surgeons who see these patients in clinic and said it would really impact their treatment plan for these patients to know uh, the specific gene and the specific genetic change these patients had. So when we went to the IRB and said, can we return the results? Um, the IRB wanted to know a lot more about possible benefits and potential risks to the patients. So we first established a medical findings group with ethicists, lawyers, genetic counselor, and medical geneticists. And we discussed for several years um, what the best approach would be. And so our first, um, we wanted to really find out from the patients themselves what information they wanted. So we coupled with, uh, we partnered with a master's genetic counseling student, uh, Jamie Love Nichols, who, and together we designed a survey. So we needed experts in survey research. So we partnered with the faculty member in health behavior and health education at the University of Michigan. That's Dr. Scott Roberts. We partnered with two um, certified genetic counselors who were on the faculty in the genetic counseling program at the University of Michigan. Uh, that's Wendy Ullman and Patty Arscott. And uh, we designed uh, a survey to ask participants, and we, we developed a couple of different scenarios. In this particular scenario, would you want the information, genetic information returned to you if it was a pathogenic variant thought to cause your disease. If it was a variant of uncertain significance and it wouldn't change your clinical care, would you want that returned? If it wouldn't change your own medical care, but it potentially changed that of your children, would you want to know? And people were most motivated to help their family members as well as any variants that changed their own clinical care. Uh, at about around 95% of participants wanted those back. And then less interested in variants that we had some uncertainty associated with them that we couldn't necessarily make sense of. Um, and so we opted not to return any of that information, but only the specific genetic changes that would impact their clinical care or that of their family members. So um, then came Adeline's project where we partnered with um, Rajni on... Um, who's with us today, to actually go ahead and return research-level genetic results through a pipeline that we designed to incorporate all of the ethical considerations. Um, so, Addie, do you want to tell us about the research team that you put together? Yeah, so uh, like Kristen mentioned, I was a graduate student at the time. I was looking for a thesis project, and Jamie, who was a year ahead of me in school, said, you should do this. This is a really interesting project. And I also, at the time, was in school for public health. Um, U of M has a great program. They offer a dual degree in public health 
as well. So for me, this was very much about what can we do from a genetic standpoint to help people um, in a larger platform. And uh, in terms of the team, it was a bit inherited, <laughs> as Kristen just mentioned. So, um, you know, we had uh, uh, Scott Roberts, who was very much a mentor for me throughout graduate school, as he was kind of my point of contact in the School of Public Health and helped um, kind of put everything together from the genetic counseling standpoint, coupled with the public health standpoint, and how we see those two things working together on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, we had Jen McNamara. She was the project man manager at the Cardiovascular Biobank, who was unbelievably amazing throughout this entire process and so helpful and so organized and kind of did everything from the very detailed um, sending out the letters to everybody who received them to helping us schedule patients and helping uh, to just make sure everything was being tracked the way that it should be tracked. Um, and then Patty, who we already mentioned, who is the genetic counselor who works with Rajani in the cardiovascular center at the University of Michigan. And then Rajani as well, given she was going to be the one actually speaking with the patients, actually returning these results and having that conversation about what does this mean to you? We then also had Wendy Allman, who um, is fairly well known in the genetic counseling community and is faculty here at University of Michigan for um, the genetic counseling program and was very helpful just in terms of um, kind of overseeing a lot of stuff and saying, hey, this is what I think, this is my experience in doing all of the past research that I've done and helping with that standpoint. And then obviously Kristen. So Kristen was the PI from the original project and was helpful just in terms of, hey, what's the overarching goal here? Let's keep that in mind as we continue to think about what we're actually doing in terms of returning results. So as a graduate student, um, lots of people on my research committee, but definitely helpful to have so many uh, voices and so much experience in a single area. And I, I felt lucky to have so many people kind of um, and their opinions with also the thought, I know later we'll get to this a little bit later in terms of what was a little bit difficult. It's a, a little bit difficult to have so many people on your committee too, but also, again, uh, really thankful that so many people cared so much about this project and I was able to kind of see something through that Kristen had been working on for so many years. Yeah, that's great. So what I, one of the things I admire about this paper is that there, um, you're spanning a gap between research and clinical work, as you mentioned. And in fact, you talk about that in figure one, right? You actually show a line between research and clinical work. So maybe Rajni, this is a good question for you. Was establishing that bridge difficult since it sounds like you were the one actually talking to the patients? Um, in theory, it just seemed like a no brainer. I mean, when you see all the, I mean, the main reason we all engage in this kind of research is finally to get information out there to help people and help healthcare and help our families. So when I was out of the country, I came back and I was, I wasn't there when Jamie was doing her work, but I came at the tail end of her work. And that's when I first met Kristen and heard about it. And she, she's like, oh, we have this thing. I'm like, why wouldn't we return it? To me, it was, why wouldn't we? And it's not just that. I see clinically these families all the time. And if someone drops dead at 30 and leaves behind two young kids, and if we can prevent that and we don't, that's just unacceptable under any circumstances, right? So for me, it was, of course, we have to do it. The question is, how do we do it correctly, ethically, morally, legally, without hurting anyone? So wanting to do it was easy. It's jumping through all the hoops to get it all done was what was really challenging. And between Kristen and Jen and 
you know, all the IRB and the work that Eddie did, I feel like my job was the easiest. I was just doing what came to me naturally, right? Here I have these results. I want to get them to you and I want to get your family in and I want to get the cascade testing done and I want to save, see lives saved. So I feel like I had the easiest job. It was just doing what I was supposed to be doing anyway, right? It was, it was what was interesting was also having to skim that line between clinical work and research because I'm primarily a, re a clinical genetic counselor. So when initially we were sending those letters out, we kept tweaking them, tweaking them, tweaking them. I remember the number of times we reviewed and re uh, reviewed those letters with Jen saying, how do we get this information out so that we are still protecting their right not to know, but giving them enough that they will contact us? Because we had to put it in their lap saying, we have something for you. Call us if we can help you understand it better. And trying to find that right balance of giving enough without being scary and giving enough without violating a need, a right not to know. So to me, that was that was part of the challenge and part of the challenges and people did not, we gave them about a two week window after we knew the letters had been received and then following up to say, hey, we sent you a letter. This is kind of what we said. Do you remember getting it? And again, trying to be non-committal non about the letter, but at the same time, knowing their results, but not saying that because there again had to be that balance that they needed to understand this is part of their medical chart. This is part of this now becomes clinical care. We're separating it from that research window. So that part was a little more where it was a learning curve, trying to get to that spot that I have this, but I can't tell you right now. And, but it, the rest of it came easy. We know what we are doing and we know the downstream impact and we know these genes are, these are not variants of uncertain significance. These are definitely pathogenic variants. And all the people we had were all people that had dissections. So we yeah. were not in gray about it. Yeah, exactly. I don't know if that yeah, kind of it, answers. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like at. that is not a comfortable feeling having to say, I have these variants, but I can't tell you about them yes. right now, right? That's, that must not feel that great. So, yeah. It took a little work. But I feel like we did it right. I mean, we did it where we gave, because there were people who didn't want to know. There were people who said, I'm not interested in knowing, or people who said, I've already had this, I have no family, I don't want that crystal ball. And we mm -hmm. gave them that so, right not to know. The other One of the other things I admired specifically about the paper was your breakdown of the costs involved in all the steps. And in fact, I was having a discussion with someone yesterday and they were asking me about costs. And I was like, I have this paper right here, actually, that talks about this. So it's useful already. So we, and we heard on previous episodes this season that counselors spend a lot of time talking to insurance payers and working on cost issues. Did this work show you, I know you're in this every day, but did this show you anything new about how clinicians and counselors need to think about the cost versus what you get from the patients? Did you learn anything on that front? Anybody? You know, when I think about cost, I think if you had asked the same question about five, six years ago, the answer would be different. And Addie, I know if you agree with me now being in the clinical space as a genetic counselor yourself, now the costs have become I'm not saying they're cheap, but they're much more manageable than they were with all these commercial testing companies in the space, right? And their work with you, insurances are more willing, we're able to justify a lot more, we're able to get things covered we never thought possible, we're able to make it affordable. So I feel like, at least from a clinical standpoint, the cost equation has changed over the last five years or so, where we're able to offer it to more people. The research side of it, which the paper primarily addressed, is a little different. And I don't know how that's changed over the years because I'm not in the research angle. But I think from a clinical standpoint, 
when we are offering a test for one person in many labs, we'll now offer downstream testing for free for the rest of the family. So if you have someone paying out of pocket, which right now some labs offer the $250, and you can now test eight or 10 people for free after that, and you've saved four lives, again, it comes back to my clinical hat that says that's a no-brainer. Yeah. I would totally agree. I think, so I work in pediatrics specifically. So for us, the big test to try to get covered is exome sequencing. And now there are labs that just don't charge you if you have a Medicaid insurance. So this to me didn't have as much of a clinical implication as it did. You know, I was really focused on the costing throughout this entire process. My, um, in, uh, public health, my degrees in health management and policy. And for me, that's a lot of how much does this cost? And um, that's important to think about regardless of if it's clinical, if it's research or wherever else you're practicing. And for me, I think this was so important because people need to know how much it's going to cost to give these results back so that they can incorporate that into their study budget from the start. And if you don't have that information, then it's just another excuse to say, we just don't know. So why would we do it? And um, like Rajani said, this is so important. And all of this information is so important for the people who want it, they should be able to get it. And they're already giving us that information about themselves. That's a very important piece of information about themselves, their DNA. And the least that we can do is help them in some way, help their family members and try to save lives. And if we have a a breakdown of what that's going to cost. If it's not going to cost, you know, if you think of the cost of a saved life, what is that, right? It's, it's not something that you can really quantify, but I, I guarantee you it's less than what it takes to actually return these results. And that goes back to another thing, because a lot of these people participate in research. And I, when I see them at the other end, when they haven't been signed up for the value bank in the last few years, and I do mention to them saying, hey, we can do this clinical test, but we may not find something. We also have a bio bank that we can you can you know, give your DNA sample to, and we may get something, we may not. You may get something in five years, you may not, but it does help us help the next family. And 90% or maybe even more of people are willing to give their blood sample, their DNA to the biorepository, to the biobank to help find something that may not never help them. And, and just the other thing to think about, too, is that this was a baseline cost. And if I had had more time, I would have been able to say, OK, we know what it costs here. Let's do a full cost effectiveness analysis. What is the downstream cost saver here? And I don't have to. I mean, you should always do the study, as we all know. But we know that this is going to save lives. It's going to save surgery costs. It's going to save um people getting uh, screening when they don't have to get screened, if they know that they don't carry the familial variant. If you think about all of the ways that just doing a simple $250 genetic test saves costs, it's it spans across the entire healthcare um, field. So I think that that's just another thing to keep in mind in terms of this was the baseline cost, but from a clinical standpoint, we're saving Absolutely. so much more. And I appreciate y'all's willingness to wander into what may seem like weeds, but are actually the foundation for so many of the studies, exactly as you said, that so many of us are doing. So Kristen, what other implications do you think this work has for human and genetics and genomics research at large? So I think, I don't know if I would go so far as to say a moral responsibility, but certainly as a scientist, I felt 
ethically uncomfortable knowing this information that could save lives and not having a pathway to return it. And in the institution, the IRB was also responsible, but much more concerned about not doing any harm to the patients. So for example, in our consent form, we had asked, um, if we find information that will impact your clinical care, would you like to know? 94% of people said yes. But we didn't say, by the way, signing up for this research study, if we find something in your DNA, we're going to tell you, and then you might have to pay out of pocket or out of your health insurance deductible to do a test to validate the finding with a clear result. That, from the IRB's point of view and from mine as well, is too onerous on a biobank participant who, as Rajni clearly outlined, has donated their time, their health information, and their DNA to try and help others. So I do think it's important to ensure that the biorepository or the genetic study has considered what will they do with this information that could save someone's life and to budget into it or if the institution will take on responsibility for ethically returning that result to that participant. Yeah, that, I agree. That's so important. I think it's something we should yeah, all be doing. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. And I, I really appreciate that your paper is bringing up these, A, bringing up these issues and showing that you can solve them, right? You're not just raising the problem with no solution. You're actually proposing solutions for that. So, you know, I'm really interested in science communication. Did you do any science communication around the paper and how did that go? Uh, so we did in the graduate program that I graduated from, we do have kind of these, what we, we call them fast talks, and it's everybody, so the PhD students, the master's students, the genetic counseling master's students all present their thesis projects at the end of the year. So um, we did that. And then um, we also had a poster at the National Society of Genetic Counselors meeting. Um, oh my gosh. In the, in the before in times. Right. Team, I think. <laughs> Yeah, I don't even know. Right, yeah, right. <laughs> Past year has been four years, so as many years ago as 2018 was. Um, and then Kristen also had some pretty significant responses as well. <clears throat> yeah, I was um, somewhat surprised when I gave talks at different institutions about the different research projects that have come out of my laboratory. You know, people are interested in GWAS of lipids or coronary artery disease. But whenever we talked about this relatively small study where we had 26 patients with a pathogenic variant, we sent 20 letters, 10 people wanted their results returned. People were fascinated to know how did you return a research level genetic result that's not CLIA, it's totally on the research side. How did you get that back to patients and end up using it in the clinical pipeline? Um, and really, it was this amazing team, Addie's work on the survey research to make sure that we weren't causing undue stress when we returned these results. Rajni's uh, expertise, seeing these patients clinically, knowing exactly what these genetic changes mean, um, her experience with ordering testing and interpreting it for patients. And the important piece that she did here was um, making clear to the participants the uncertainty given that it was not a CLIA test. In terms of outreach, um, again, I was surprised at how much interest there was when I talked about this paper at, um, for example, at Mount Sinai where they're doing similar things. Um, and so when I tweeted about it, I tweeted about it in, in a sort of storyboard format 
in terms of someone coming to my office and saying, uh, you know, and we and we literally, when we first looked at the information, uh, de-identified, of course, but the the family history information, some of these families had multiple people that had been lost at early ages and uh, clinical diagnosis maybe didn't match what was um, would have been made from the genetic variant. And it was uh, heartbreaking to read these stories. And we thought, you know, if that was my child, 100% I would want to know if they could be screened, if they could have surgery to prevent this outcome. Um, so we did. We just worked really hard to overcome all those hurdles. And um, I, I can only encourage other genetic studies to return results with this level of clinical implications. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you about the interest. It was one of my colleagues on our um, online programs and professional education working group that nominated your paper. And yet I'm like taking notes on it for my work too. So I'm really interested in it. So getting uh, long on time, but is there anything that I didn't ask that you really want me to ask? I think one of the things we also found, and as we're returning this, just to be careful, there were some people who did not want to know. So while we work in healthcare, we're knowledge-based, we're information-based, and that's what drives us. But we have to also be very cognizant of the fact that there are people who don't want to know. And I think since then, correct me if I'm wrong, Kristen, but we've modified the IRB and the consent form a little bit. So people up front have this idea that, yes, they may get results back. Yes, they may be contacted. And if you don't want it, you can opt out. So letting people know ahead of time that something may come and you do have the option to say, no, I'm just donating this to science and I don't want anything back. There are people who don't want to know. And I think we have to be very aware of the fact that there are they have their own reasons for not wanting to know. And while we feel very strongly that we need this to help take care of them, not everybody wants it. And I think we just being able to be aware of all the different options that are out there. Like Kristen said, we had families that the results came in too late. I mean, some of those families I had seen clinically before that even knowing, and I've seen four, five, six people die in those families, and it breaks your heart. But at the same time, that family still has the option not to know. And that's what the cornerstone of genetic counseling is about anyway, right? It's about making those choices. Thank you so much, Addie, Rajni, and Kristen for being with us today on the podcast. And I am looking forward to seeing how people use this work. Thank you. Thank you for getting it out there. It's our pleasure.